We are in the middle of Matthew's Gospel. We are making our way through and seeing the glory of Christ, that He is the revealed Son of God, the Messiah for Israel, the one who is promised by the prophets. We are learning in Matthew that Jesus should be the only object of our faith. He's not only worthy of our trust and commitment, He is also the only one who can rescue us from our sinfulness and our hopeless condition. Just to review a little bit, we have discussed the contrast between faith in Christ versus doubt and unbelief. Last time in Matthew 14, we saw that Peter got his eyes off of Jesus after Peter had gotten out of the boat and was walking on the water to walk out to Jesus. His faith wavered as Peter saw the wind and the waves and his focus was off of Christ and on to his circumstances. But we also saw that Jesus appears to let Peter sink a little slower so that he could rescue him and ultimately show Peter that he needed deliverance from Christ. So Peter cries out for deliverance, says, Save me, Lord! And Jesus reached out and saved Peter. Again, I think it's important to emphasize Peter was walking on water because Jesus was keeping him up on the water. Peter sank ultimately because Jesus allowed him to sink, ultimately to show Peter that his faith was weak and that he needed to trust in him. Peter, and even our own faith, folks, beloved, does not make us strong. It does not make us personally strong by ourselves. Our faith is in Christ who then works through us to do great things for his glory And his honor. It's about him. Faith in Jesus alone is what guarantees deliverance and victory in this world. Not faith in ourself by any stretch of the imagination. We're going to see today, even in our passage, that the the Pharisees and the scribes ultimately were trusting in themselves. They were trusting in their own good works, their own religious activity. And that was actually... The opposite of what they needed to do. The disciples, however, did appear to get it a little bit. It was like flashes of glory that they understood, wow, God is big. Look at Matthew 14, 32 and 33. In Matthew 14, we see when they got back into the boat, Peter and Jesus, the wind stopped. Again, probably a miracle. Jesus makes the wind stop. The very thing that was causing Peter to what? Doubt. His circumstances were actually, he looked off, but it it appears that Jesus was actually causing those winds. Very interesting. All to produce in Peter and the disciples one main thing. Here it is. Worship. And those who were in the boat worshipped him. Saying, you are certainly God's son. Who's the hero of Peter walking on water? Jesus. (laughs) He walked on water. Jesus walked on water. Jesus calmed the storm, calmed the wind, got in the boat after walking on water, after delivering Peter. Jesus is certainly the Son of God and all people 
should worship Him. He's worthy of our worship. The revelation of Jesus' glory then only grows when He lands in Gennesaret. Look at 14.34. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Him, that is Jesus, they sent word into all the surrounding districts and brought to Him all who were sick. And they implored Him, Jesus, that they might just touch the fringe of His cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. We, under, we all understand that it wasn't the fringe of Jesus' garment that had the power to heal, right? Do you understand that? When you look at a passage like this, it's very interesting to me how people twist the Scriptures around to make it what they want it to say. Do you understand that Jesus didn't have magic fringes? What He had was, He was the Son of God. And anything associated with Him showed that it was about Him. Now, you know that people have twisted things. Even over in, uh, in, in Israel, they say that they found the crossbeam where Jesus was, or, and, which is probably not true. And people walk by and they touch the crossbeam and they feel like they get healed. And they're somehow going to get this, this special, miraculous healing if they touch the crossbeam where Jesus was. Oh, beloved, do you understand that that's not even what this is about? Jesus is showing His glory. You must trust in Him. That's all He's doing is He's curing these people because they're associating with Him miraculous powers that He is more than just a man. Jesus was becoming more and more popular, however, when He does this healing. Jesus was revealing His glory and people were pursuing Him. Big crowds were pursuing Him. This was bad news for the Jewish establishment, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Today in our passage, we will see unbelieving, the unbelieving Jewish leadership calls in the big guns to put down the rising popularity of Jesus. Notice in chapter 15, verse 1, the Pharisees and the scribes come from Jerusalem. They come to confront Jesus. This was no small trip. There, they had traveled all the way from Jerusalem down the 3,000 uh, uh, 3, feet elevation all the way down into Jericho and then all the way up past uh, the Jordan, up to the Jordan, up the Jordan River, up to Gennesaret. They had come a long ways. There was real concern in the leadership of the Jews that saw Jesus becoming very popular. And like before the Pharisees of that area had confronted him, now you have them coming all the way from Jerusalem, the top dogs, the big guys, are coming down to give him a hard time and to dispel him. But like before, we see Jesus wasn't intimidated by these false religious leaders. In fact, our passage is kind of bracketed by the verse 2 and then by verse 20. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. That was the accusation. And then by the ver- by 20, verse 20, you get the final conclusion. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. 
So you can see the bracket of the passage. That's the passage that we're going to be dealing with today. The accusation in verse 2 is answered by Jesus all the way through the section and then finally in summary fashion by verse 20. And the answer is found in that last verse. Jesus reveals biblical ethics in this section, doesn't he? He tells us what is morality, what is righteousness, and where does it come from. The Lord's ethic is based, and it's very important for us to understand, on the authoritative word of God, not on the self-righteous traditions of men. The Lord's ethic is based on the authoritative word of God, not the self-righteous traditions of men. Humanity often determines its ethics by what they can accomplish and what exalts them as being good people. You know, we're going to see as time goes along more and more in a moral, moral relativistic society that what is considered to be good is obviously evil. But this is the heart of man. It's going to claim something that is evil is actually good so that it can then what? Exalt itself. That's what humanity does. That's why you will have the LGBT movement. You be a evil person if you say that that is evil. Why? Because the heart of man seeks a religion that elevates itself. This is no different today than it was then. The traditions of men for the Pharisees were just that. Traditions made up to elevate themselves above other people. But God's ethic is based on His righteous standard and is only accomplished by Him working in the innermost being of man. It's the only way it can be accomplished. This section is full of exposures of the unbelieving heart. Our passage breaks down into really two sections, two main sections. First, there's the rebuke of the self-righteous legalists in verses 1 to 9. And then there's second, the exhortation to the disciples to understand righteously in verses 10 to 20. Today we'll learn our relationship with God is revealed by our heart Motivated actions, not our external religious practices. Again, very important, this is the point. Our relationship with God is revealed by our heart-motivated actions, not our external religious practices. So let's start with the first section. The rebuke of the self-righteous legalist. The rebuke of the self-righteous legalist. Notice this section starts with the, an accusation by the self-righteous leaders, the self-righteous legalists. There's the legalist accusation is found in verses 1 and 2. Read with me. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? The Pharisees here accused Jesus and his disciples. Again, these are the big guns from Jerusalem. Scribes were considered the experts in the law. They were the scholars of the day. They were the ones that knew the law and knew the traditions that had arisen from it, the law, better than anyone. So if you wanted a determination of whether or not you were breaking the law, you went to a scribe, 
a scholar of their day to tell you whether you were being a good person or a bad person or whether you were defiled or you were pure and clean and holy. Boy, the scribes are very much like the scholars today in some cases. The liberals that tell us what is good and what is wrong and what is right when it's really not based on Scripture at all. Or it's just like the Roman Catholics that were talked about last week by Mike. Often telling them pontificating and saying, this is what righteousness is. This is how you achieve right standing with God. But notice the charge by the experts of this false religion. They give this charge. Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Was their charge, question, was their charge an accurate accusation? Was their charge an accurate accusation? Well, yeah, it was. It was an accurate accusation. Probably so. The traditions of the elders was that uh, was the man-made requirement that religious Jews had to add to the law had added to the law in order to make them pure. As we will see, the charge is accurate, but the tradition was erroneous. <laughs> in other words, they made a right charge based on the information and the authority that they appealed to, but the authority that they appealed to was what? Evil and wrong and sinful and contradictory to Scripture. So, was this an attack on the disciples or Jesus? Answer, both. Ultimately, however, it was primarily attack on who? Jesus. Because, see, the teacher and his followers, his disciples... He was responsible for them. And if he had not taught them to purify themselves and clean their hands and do these things, then he was the big wrong in their eyes. They were attacking him. We know this. We understand this. This is what it's about. They didn't believe. They were rejecting him. Like the other Pharisees, they were saying what, they were, what he was doing was evil. What happens with the self-righteous religion? It actually calls what is evil good and what is good evil. And that's what they did here. In the eyes of the Jews, the teacher's disciple being unclean and impure was a shame for the teacher himself. So what was their case? Look at the verse. The case they make. What was the tradition the disciples had failed to do? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now everybody in the room and all the kids especially are thinking, Oh, so mom and dad are like the Pharisees. They make us wash our hands before we eat our food. No, no, no. That's not the context and that's not the point. This is not like our common cultural practice of washing our hands before we eat. This is more associated with the purity practices associated with the law of Moses. The Jews had taken the law and had applied it, had applied it incorrectly. They had said because people touch unclean people like Gentiles and other objects that Gentiles touched, they were required to purify themselves, wash away this uncleanliness of the world, and if not, they would 
take on this impurity and they would actually be defiled inside of them. Isn't this so similar to the Roman Catholic religion of our day? All the external purity issues. Beloved, this is the heart of the lost person. It makes a right standing with God based on human achievements. External human achievements. Have you been blown away? I'm shocked at times when you have somebody that's uh, uh, in the LGBT movement come out with a bold statement on what is morally right and wrong. I think to myself, man, it seems like such a contradiction. People will stand up and say, this is morally wrong, yet they are doing morally wrong things. This is what the human heart does. The human heart is always seeing sin and every other, everybody else. And the things that they can accomplish and do, they say that's morally good and I do it just great. But the things other people can't do, they condemn. Jesus was having none of this though, was he? Wasn't. I find it very interesting that he really doesn't give the answer to their question, does he? He gives it to the crowd and to the disciples later, but he doesn't even answer the Pharisees. Why? Why doesn't he tell them, hey, guys, you got your whole system backwards, it's upside down. He does to a degree, but he doesn't explain the answer fully to them. He just what? Asks more questions right back at them. He springs a trap on them. Why? Well, I believe, again, this is the judgment of the Lord. He's basically saying, I'm not going to give you revelation because your hearts are prideful and opposed to me. You're not humble, so you get nothing. Notice the righteous one's rebuke in verses 3 to 9. Jesus confronts the Pharisees' religious hypocrisy. Again, finding it interesting, he answers a charge with a charge. And ask a question for their question. He doesn't even answer their charge. But he goes and answered and said to them, as verse 3 states, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of tradition? Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He turns around. It turns it around on them, doesn't he? Then Jesus gives a case study for religious hypocrisy to the guys, explaining how hypocritical they really are, showing them how bad this charge is and where their heart is completely off the rail. Notice in verse 4, the case is made. Jesus prosecutes the case. He says what? For God said, Honor your father and mother, mother, And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would be, would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. What does Jesus do here? Well, as we saw in our Old Testament passage, he quotes from the Ten Commandments. 
He grows right to the law of God. The law given by Moses. In Exodus 20 verse 12, he says, Honor your father and mother. And then he alludes to a passage in Exodus 21, 17, which is still God's explanation of the law. Where it says in 21, 17, He who curses his father or mother shall be put to death. So these commandments that Jesus lays out as the one, the ones being transgressed by their obedience to their tradition. The tradition was this. Somewhat like this, quote, If you claimed something was given to God, then a person was not obligated to help even their own parents with it, with the stuff. Let me kind of give you an idea. Your parent comes up to you and says, Hey, I need a little bit of food. And you say, Oh, my money, it's given to God. It's for sacred use. They called it Corbin. Corbin. Whenever you say... Your money is given to God. It's for sacred use. You basically got a, I don't have to give it to anybody else. I, I don't have to share this with anybody else. This is God's money, for lack of a better term. You say, well, what's wrong with that? If they gave it to God, wouldn't that be a great thing? If they gave it to God, then couldn't the people then turn around and give it to the people? Well, here's the thing. They didn't have to give it to God. Give it to the people. They didn't give it to the people. They would just use that phrase to kind of protect it. So in other words, it's protected in my pocket for a little bit longer. And I can use it for whatever I want later on. I can reverse Corbin and use it for whatever, whenever, whatever I want to use it for. So why help my parent? It's given to God. It's God's money. Put it, keep it in my pocket, and then use it however I want. Doesn't that sound... Horrible? Oh, beloved, this is the heart that we were born with. The heart that lies. The heart that uses even God and even Christian religious reasons to do with what we want with our own stuff. And what happens is, is they ended up reversing or contradicting the very scriptures that said, honor your father and mother, take care of them. Ultimately, it was just a way of avoiding supporting their parents. But Jesus gives a verdict, doesn't he? Look at his verdict. His verdict is very clear. And by this, they invalidated the word. And by this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Man-made religion always ends up invalidating the Word of God eventually. That's a fact. As we saw last week, right? Taking the Mass actually crucifies Jesus again and denies the finished work of Christ. This is what religious works do. Praying to Mary eliminates going directly to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. And it eliminates the very thing that God tells us to do. It's amazing. Man-made religions flip everything upside down and you end up opposing the very thing that God tells us to do. Man-made religion 
is also accomplishable by humans. And this is a very important point for everybody to notate. Listen, when I was a, a, a child, I used to serve as an acolyte in the, in the Episcopal Church. And I used to serve as an acolyte, and I would serve the bread and the wine and the, all those things. You know why I did it? Ultimately, I was trying to be a good person. I wanted to be a religious person. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to accomplish it. And guess what? I could do it. The priest taught me how to do it. And I accomplished it. And I was one good acolyte. And I wore a white robe and carried a cross. And guess what it got me? Nothing. Self-righteousness? Self-righteous works. But this is how the heart of man is. And this is how the traditions of man go. We can fall into that too here, by the way. Just understand that. Just because you come to church does not mean that you are somehow achieving something that's going to get you right with God. Getting baptized is not going to somehow get you, you know, you're going to wash it away. And now, now you're okay with God. It doesn't work that way. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is not in our actions. Our faith is in Christ alone. Christ alone delivers us. No one in this room is going to heaven because of what you do. We're going to heaven because of what He did. Our faith is in Him alone. But notice Jesus' judgment in verses 7 through 9. Wow. Do you think he holds any punches here? No. And I find it very interesting. They come from Jerusalem. They come down and within just a couple of sentences, he's calling them hypocrites. Yo! I mean, there was no easing into this, was it? He knew their hearts. He knew what they were about. He knew they rejected him. He knew they had nothing to do with him. And he probably, and he did, know that they were going to eventually kill him. Because these were the same Pharisees and scribes that would then vote for him to die. He knew their hearts. He knew what they were about. Look what he calls them. You hypocrites. Mm. If he was writing a book on how to win friends and influence people, that would not be the title. You hypocrites. You fakes. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when somebody starts applying Old Testament passages to me, or even New Testament passages to me, I sure don't want this one applied to me. Is this cutting? Is this direct? Is he going right after them? Look at these words. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. Jesus doesn't mince words here, does he? You hypocrites. Jesus calls them fakes, actors. He confronts them. You say... 
You are for purity and holiness when in fact the opposite is true. You are hypocrites. Then he applies this Isaiah 29 passage to the Pharisees. This people honors me with their lips. This is a perfect description of a religious hypocrite. You know what? They honor God with their lips, but their heart is far away from Him. But in vain they worship Him. In vain? What does He mean? Uselessly. Uselessly do they worship Me. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. This is frightening frightening exposure. People honor me with their lips, but they have words without heart. Words without a heart that's behind it. They say, a gift of God! But what motivates them? Themselves. Themselves. Their worship was useless. It was vain. It was foolishness. A gift of God! This is for God's use. And then they turn around and do what? Spend it on their fleshly desires. Their hearts were far from God. It was useless worship. That's why we can't always look at somebody that professes or proclaims worship and say, oh, they get it! They get it! That's why we have to be very careful of some of these uh, really amazing, quote-unquote, good worship songs that come out. Just because somebody acknowledges God as great does not mean that their hearts are behind it. And that the God that they're really worshiping is the God of the Bible. It's often the God that they've made up in their mind and that exalts them. We must be careful of this. This is what false religion does. And it's what it does today too. You know, the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Roman Catholics, the Muslims, they do the same thing. They exalt themselves. They say they worship God, but in fact, they are really exalting themselves. Jesus is having no part of this, and He confronts it. So we've seen Jesus was falsely accused, and... The Lord then defends Himself by showing the reverse is true and rebukes the Pharisees and scribes and their unrighteous legalism. Next we see the exhortation to the disciples, the exhortation to the disciples to understand righteously. Look at verse 10. In verse 10 and 11, we begin to see that Jesus gives imperatives to His followers to understand righteously. He gives three imperatives, three ideas that they must take to heart. We need to take them to heart too. What are they? Well, first I want you to notice that we must understand what truly defiles a person. What truly defiles a person. What makes us unclean. Notice Jesus shepherds the crowd concerning the truth in verse 10 and 11. After Jesus called the crowd to Him, He said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Now again, it doesn't say Jesus called the Pharisees to himself. It appears that there's a distinction here. 
He's basically saying he understands the sheep without a shepherd. They need shepherds. So what is he going to do? He's going to say, let me expose this tradition of men. Let me expose this false religion. Let me show what's wrong with it. By the way, this is a good reason for us to speak up and speak the truth, right? This is a reason to have a Mike Gendron come and expose the false lies of the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because we're supposed to, as good shepherds, expose the false teaching of the world. And then explain the truth. Explain what is doctrinally accurate. Hear and understand. Pay attention. Embrace. It's not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds from the mouth. This defiles the man. Jesus calls the crowd to hear and understand. Jesus says defilement is not about what goes into a person, but rather what comes out of a person. We don't sin by breaking some religious tradition. We sin by acting from our wicked hearts. That's what is sin. We must understand it comes from within us. Very, very important. Look, religion wants to make it, false religions want to make it about what you do and the external because then they don't have to deal with what? The heart. The heart. Which is where all the problems are rooted. They're all rooted right inside here. Jesus says, it's not what enters the mouth that defiles them. It's what proceeds out of the mouth. Next, Jesus goes and exhorts the disciples to avoid those who do not understand righteousness. Avoid those who do not understand righteously. Look at verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Uh Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, what does it say about the about the disciples for a second though? It says something very clearly about the disciples. They respected the Pharisees. To a degree, they saw what the crowd saw, what most of the world saw or the religious the Jewish world at that time saw. They thought the Pharisees were what? Right and religious and holy and pure and good. Why? Because they were good actors. They had used this to clean up the outside of the cup. And people could look at that and say, Ooh, that's a religious man. Why do you think people say, The Holy Father, talking about the Pope? Because he's painted himself to be holy. They painted themselves out to be these righteous, good people. When in fact they are what? Evil. Lost. Antichrists. Do you see how this plays real well right off of last week? Same truth, same stuff, same problem, just repackaged. Same thing. By the way, this speaks to something very profound in verse 12 too. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? That word offended, 
(laughs) Take note. That's what? They were scandalized. Scandalized? That's where we get our word scandal. They were offended. What's the point? We know that the stone which the builders rejected would become the chief cornerstone, right? Why? Because the builders would reject and they would stumble over the stumbling stone. They would be offended by Him. Hmm. Let me ask you a question. And this is a hard one and this is one that we even talked in evangelism today. If we teach the truth and we speak the truth, even in love, are we going to offend religious people? Oh, absolutely. They're going to be offended by Jesus. By the stumbling stone. It is offensive message, right? Now, do we offend just for the sake of offense? No, it's not just to make somebody mad at us. We're not doing that. But as we proclaim the truth and we call them out on their what? Religious hypocrisy. You think you're good. The Bible says the opposite. It says, honor your father and mother, and I know you haven't done that. When we call that out, that is an offense. Again, make sure that you use the authority that's from Scripture, not from you. It's not about us, right? The word often, offense, is associated with Jesus to be scandalized. So it's important for us to understand the gospel is offensive. The disciples were like, though, hey, you know you've stepped on the religious people's toes. You've offended them. By the way, in our society, and, and just a side note, this is a, this is a little bit of a hobby horse. I'm sorry, I'm just for a second. Uh, if you're, you're offended at everything, there's a problem. And if you, if you can't take a little bit of correction, it might be because of pride. Do you understand? If you can't be told, hey, you're, you're wrong here. What is that? If you can't accept that, that says you think too much of yourself. Right? This was what the Pharisees' problem was. They were offended because he said, hey, you messed up. You got it backwards. What should they have done? Yep. Your Lord, I'm not. I need help. Help me. But notice who the disciples took the side of. Yozer. He said, do you understand everything? I guess they didn't, did they? They had a lot to learn, didn't they? But exposure is part of preaching and teaching. And you know, I think I think Peter and John and James and all the disciples, except for Judas, got it, didn't they? They got it. And they stood up and boldly said, Hey, you crucified him. Acts two. The gospel is a call to evaluate and see our sinfulness and our need of Christ. The good news is offensive because it includes showing unbelievers what they need to do and what they need and who they are, that they're sinners. Does the gospel include the bad news? It's a trick question. I think it does. 
You say, how does it include the bad news? Because it's really not bad news if you realize how much you need him. It's actually good news. What? I want you to think about this for a second. Romans 1.16, he says, For the power of God is the gospel to save, right? And what's the next three chapters all about? Sinfulness. The sinfulness of your heart. It is part of the gospel. That God is a righteous and holy God and that all sin must be paid for. To be told that you've sinned, if it's from the scriptures, it's actually part of the good news because it shows us we need Him. And that He's righteous. How many of you have ever thought the last time somebody confronted me, they were loving me because they were giving me and showing me my need of Christ. That's how we need to look at it. Pharisees couldn't handle that because they were being good people. And if you tell a good person that they're not good, what do they do? They get mad. And they're offended. So maybe we should what? Not be so thin-skinned. Be willing to be corrected a little bit. That's all of us, including myself. Jesus instructs his disciples to avoid the self-righteous religious teachers. Notice, he says, But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. uprooted. What is this? This is talking all about election. Nah, really? Yes, election here. This is God's sovereignty. Look at it. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Who is that? That's the Pharisees. He didn't plant them. Isn't it very interesting? It, it harkens back to what parable? The wheat and the tares. The wheat and the tares. He didn't plant them. He's basically saying... That the Pharisees weren't planted by my heavenly Father. They are tares. And they shall be judged. They shall be judged. In fact, what are you supposed to do with the tares? He gives us the answer of what we're supposed to do with the tares. What are we supposed to do with the religious Pharisees? What are we supposed to do with the self-righteous ones? who are all about exalting themselves. You ready? He tells us, let them alone. Leave them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. What's his point? It's very clear. A self-righteous religious person that's following religious Traditions for the sake of exalting themselves, they are blind. They cannot see the truth. And what are they doing? They're leading other blind people uh, into a pit. So don't follow them. Avoid them. Don't follow after their self-righteousness. Wow, that's pretty clear, isn't it? But do you understand who he's telling this to? He's telling this to the disciples, and the disciples thought, what of the Pharisees? But aren't they holy? Aren't they good? 
aren't they good religious people? And he's saying what? No, avoid them, avoid them. Don't follow them. They're blind guides. You'll fall into a pit. Don't go after them. And then finally, Jesus implores the disciples, understand where unrighteousness originates. I love this. Look at this. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? And this is cool how this keeps coming back up. He keeps showing the disciples what? You understand, but you don't. You understand, but you don't. You don't un- you got a glory, you glimpse of my glory, and they go, worship, wow, you truly are the Son of God. Oh, this is good. But you don't. You don't really get it. You don't fully get it. You're still telling me that I offended the Pharisees. When in fact you should have said, you did good, you offended the Pharisees. You confronted them. Good job. It's really all about you, Jesus. It's not about us. That's what they should have said. And Peter says, explain to me the parable. Explain to us the parable. And Jesus says, are you still lacking understanding also? Where does sin originate? He says, verse 17. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and and is eliminated? What's the point? What you eat, what you drink, what you do with your hands, whether you wash your hands or these things, that isn't going to make you sinful. (laughs) That stuff comes in, goes out. It's not about that. It's not about some purification, some spiritual, religious, self-righteous, spiritual act that earns you right standing with God. The problem is what? The heart. The heart. Notice verse 18. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile a man. It's the heart's the problem. It's our soul. Our old man, it creates what? It sins. It sins all the time. And it comes out with what we say, doesn't it? And what we do. Verse 19. Because out of the heart comes evil thoughts. How many of you have evil thoughts? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) All of us, right? We all do. Okay, then everybody raise your hand. We have them. Where'd they come from? Well, I got them from my parents. I got them from TV. Beloved, do you understand if you're put in a room, you would have plenty and isolated, you'd have plenty of bad things going on in your own heart. I like to refer to this. This is, uh, have you all heard of the satellites, the uh, satellites or whatever? I can't say their name, but back in the old days, during the dark ages, the Roman Catholics, some of the Roman Catholics, the ones that weren't really saved, they thought, I got to be pure. And the way that I would be pure, the way that we can be pure, is we will build a pole, a giant pole, and build something on top of the pole. And they crawled up the pole. And they would stay in these little houses built on these poles for years and years and years. You know why they did it? So they could be pure. Holy. 
set apart from the world. I'm up here. I'm not contaminated by anything or anybody. The problem is, is you are one wicked person sitting up in that box. You already are contaminated because your heart is contaminated. Now, I know we look at that and we laugh, don't we? But do you understand that it's your heart too? That you think somehow, we think somehow that I'm righteous by what I accomplish and who I am. And if I don't eat this or don't eat, do this or don't say this or don't do that, I'm somehow the righteous one. And I'm undefiled by the world. But out of my heart comes evil thoughts. Out of your hearts come evil thoughts. They flow. Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. You say, well, Pastor Mike, I don't do any of those. Are you sure it's not crossed your mind before? You haven't had those evil thoughts before? If you've never had any evil thoughts and you've never thought hatred, Jesus said what? If you hate your brother, you've actually committed murder in your heart. If you've looked upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've what? Committed adultery. You've never had any of these? Oh, be careful. You know you have. We have, haven't we? Now, wait a second. These are the things that defile. They come out of us and they defile us and they show us to be who we really are, which is what? Sinners. We have a bad what? Heart. We've been born with it. How many of it have it? All of us. All of us have it. Now, what shocks me is what doesn't happen at this point. And I don't see anything. And I'm not arguing from silence because ultimately... He usually gives more responses. I don't know where it is. Where is it? What should have happened? The same thing that happened to Peter when he was walking on water and started to sink. That's what should have happened. He should have said, Lord, save me! i got a heart problem and I can't change my heart. I'm stuck on thinking that it's about what I do on the outside when in fact it's a heart issue. You want to know where all of our sins and our problems in our marriage come from? Our hearts. You want to know why? You want to know why marriages are breaking up and kids are mistreated? And the world is falling apart because of our hearts. I've got some good news for you. There was one who came into the world that had a perfect heart. A righteous heart. A holy, unblemished, spotless heart. The virgin birth guarantees this. Jesus Christ came into the world righteous as he is. Lived a perfect life. Never sinned. Never had an evil thought. Never had a murderous thought. Never had an adulterous thought. Never had a fornication thought. 
never had a theft thought or a false witness thought or he never slandered not once. And he walked on water. And he was righteous. And then he died on a cross. And he rose from the dead. And if we trust him, we can be forgiven. And all of his righteousness can be credited to our account and all of our sin can be put on him and it is finished. I'm not not getting to heaven based on anything I do. I'm getting to heaven based completely on what he has done. So who do we look to? Christ alone. Lord, save me. That's our prayer, isn't it? Is that our prayer today, even if we've already known that truth? Yeah, he's the only one that can take the evil thoughts from our heart. He's the only one that can clean us up. May God be glorified in us as we trust in him and we produce the righteousness that he is producing in us. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord, the one who came into the world, the righteous one. We are worthy of your judgment. We are worthy of hell, for lack of a better term. Lord, we are there. We are the self-righteous. And only by your grace can we be saved. God, I pray that if there's someone in here that is trusting in their good works, I pray that you will show them that it is religious hypocrisy and that they're a fake. I pray that you will show them that they need Christ alone. Oh God, please save. And Lord, start with us. Sanctify us. Help us. We who believe we still have this old dead body, the old man that we carry around that we're constantly putting to death by the Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to continue to keep our eyes fixed on Christ that we will love Him and that we will serve Him and that we will trust You. That we won't trust in our works. We'll trust in You alone. That we won't be religious fakes. Confront us with Your Word, Lord, when we are. Call us to faith in Christ alone again. We love You, Father. We trust You, Lord Jesus. We thank You, Spirit, for working in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.